know, moments like these can serve the soul well um, by reminding us of our mortality as we consider the unique circumstances surrounding this COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak and the way that that is affecting society. Many people are being confronted with the brevity of life and the fragility of life. The slow pace that we find ourselves in can cause us to step back and to take stock of the lives that we've been living up to this point. And for many people, that self-assessment can be unsettling. That self-assessment can be disturbing. It can conjure up fear. It can create a crisis of conscience in our lives as we may find ourselves fearful of what we may face in the worst-case scenarios of our death. And, and so what happens is we begin to grasp for remedies. We begin to look for things to appease our consciences and to settle our souls when we are confronting with the harsh realities of life in a, in a fallen world. And on many occasions, there's a little, little legalist that is awakened within us during times like this so that we make resolutions and we make commitments saying things like, well, I better do better. I better do better. From this point forward, I'm going to do better. I might not be able to account for everything that has happened in my life up to this point, but from this moment forward, I better do better. And this little legalist begins to speak. This little legalist begins to convince our conscience that we can make things right on our own. Years ago, I remember reading an interview with David Letterman where he was asked about his performance. Each time he took the stage to record The Tonight Show, he, he was asked or how, what kind of drove him, what drove his performance night in and night out, and this is what he shared in response. What drives your performance night in and night out? What motivates you to go out on stage and perform your show? He said, well, every night you're trying to prove your self-worth. It's like meeting your girlfriend's family for the first time. You want to be the absolute best, wittiest, smartest, most charming, best-smelling version of yourself. If I can make people enjoy the experience and have a higher regard for me when I'm finished, it makes me feel like an entire person. If I come short of that, I'm not happy. How things go for me every night is how I feel about myself for the next 24 hours. Because I'm not playing a character. I'm trying to give you the best version of myself. Many of us view life as a stage. And life is a stage upon which we are to present the best versions of ourselves. But if we're honest with ourselves, we're not doing a very good job. And it is a... It is a defeating way to live, thinking we must prove ourselves to other people and definitely defeating when we think we must prove ourselves to the God who created us, to the God who loves us enough to send his son Jesus to die for us. And so what I want to do this morning and as we study the scriptures today is I want to show you how the gospel silences that little legalist that may be popping up in your heart as you step into this unique stretch of life. I don't want us to be like Brett Favre who once said, you are only as good as your last pass. I don't want you to live your life under the fear and the tyranny of a conscience at crisis because you do not know what the gospel 
is for you and what Jesus wants to do for you. And so if you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 15. We've been journeying through the book of Acts in our church throughout most of the year. And, and today's the day we get to return to Acts chapter 15 and, and look at a passage that shows how the gospel conquers legalism, how the gospel overcomes the, the crisis of conscience that some of you may be experiencing right now in your lives. This chapter is key to the book of Acts. It occupies quite literally a central position. It is kind of at the heart, at the core of this book. And what's happening in the passage that you've just heard read is that there's a debate going on between the relationship, between the gospel and God's law. This moment takes place about seven to ten years after uh, the gospel reached a man named Cornelius and And Peter shared the gospel with a group of non-Jewish people, and they believed the gospel. They received the Spirit. Their lives were transformed. This is about seven to ten years after that moment. And and in between that time, Paul and Barnabas started going to other contexts that were predominantly Gentile and not necessarily Jewish. And they were sharing the gospel, and they were seeing many people come to faith. And so they returned to the church in Jerusalem, and they began to have a meeting to celebrate and to talk about what God had been doing. But there are some people in the first church, there were some people who were there in that moment, and they weren't excited. They weren't happy about what they were hearing, and and quite frankly, it's because they were too legalistic. (laughs) They were too legalistic to celebrate the advancement of the gospel. Legalism robs us of so much. Robs us of so much joy, so much, so much life. Legalism keeps us from seeing the beauty of God's activity in the world around us. And this is certainly true for some of those who are engaging this debate against Paul and Barnabas. Look at, verse, look at verses 4 and 5. It says, When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, legalism is a subtle dynamic of the human heart. It's subtle because it often arises from within. You see in this moment, the legalism arising from within the church, verse 5, clearly states that this opposing party were believers. These were Men and women who trusted in the gospel, who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but yet here they are saying that it is necessary to circumcise those who are not Jewish, but are coming to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Most of the Christians in the first century were, or in the first church, were Jewish, and one of the primary marks of their faith, of their relationship with God, was circumcision, and that practice, and that priority dates all the way back to Abraham. So this was a long-standing conviction and practice in the history of Israel and the history of God's people. And and now they're hearing about non-Jewish people stepping into the kingdom of God, and and they're not on board with it because those non-Jewish people hadn't been circumcised. And so they're imposing this strict rule and this strict regulation upon this, this new batch of Christians, this new group of people who are coming to trust in Christ. Now, legalism is subtle because it often arises from within. In this instance, it's rising from within the church. But I want you to consider today how it's often arising from within your own heart. 
It rises within your own heart where you are not convinced that Jesus is enough for you in every moment of every day. You take stock of your life and you find holes, you find shortcomings, and you think you must fill those holes and and make up for those shortcomings by how well you resolve to live the Christian life or to perform a moral life or to engage in religious activity. And, And you have this little legalist lurking within your heart who speaks up in those moments, convincing you that Jesus isn't enough for you. This is essentially the conversation that they were having in Acts. One of the ways that this shows up in your life, perhaps if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer in Jesus right now, maybe you are convinced that before you become a Christian, you must first get your act together, that you must first kind of clean yourself up. And if you can get rid of some of those unholy habits that have accumulated in your heart and in your mind and in your life up to this point in your life, you think you must take care of those before coming to Jesus or before getting involved in what Jesus is doing through his people in the church. And that's, that's a lie. You do not have to get your act together before coming to faith in Jesus. You come to faith in Jesus and, and by his grace, through the power of his spirit, he works changes in you from the inside out. He cleans your life up in, a, in the deep places of your soul, in the deep places of your heart. So legalism is subtle because it often arises from within and we want to silence those tendencies and those voices that pop up. But legalism is also subtle. It's subtle because it oftentimes affirms Jesus. And there are many people who are driven by a legalistic spirit who speak well of Jesus, who affirm Jesus. Understand that in this moment, this group of people who were opposing Paul and Barnabas and were debating in this moment, they affirmed Jesus. They did not deny him. They did not reject Jesus. They believed Jesus was the Messiah. But it seems they communicated a message that suggested believing in Jesus, that Jesus died for sins was enough to kind of get your foot into the door of God's kingdom. It can get the paperwork started on your adoption into his family. But in order for you to come all the way in, in order for you to be secure in the kingdom of God, or secure in the family of God, you need other things as well. So they would say, yeah, Jesus is needed, but he's not enough. And so in this debate, they would appeal to the law of Moses. They would identify things that were distinctly distinctly Jewish practices like circumcision and Sabbath keeping and dietary restrictions, these aspects of the ceremonial law. And they would present these to, if they had their way, they would present these things to Gentile people, to non-Jewish people, saying, yeah, you, okay, you, you've got Jesus, now you need these other things. And so they would affirm Jesus. And this is one of the, one of the lies of legalism, right? The serious lie of legalism, it arises and it pops up, not, <laughs> it arises and it pops up when we deny that, not because we are denying that Jesus is needed, It pops up when we deny that Jesus is enough. We need to add something to his work. We need to add something to his performance if our unsettled conscience is going to be, is going to find peace. C.S. Lewis wrote a book many years ago called Screwtape Letters. It's one of my favorites. And and in it, it's a dialogue between one demon instructing another demon on how to tempt a Christian or to go after a Christian so that 
a new Christian may be distracted or rendered powerless or ineffective in living the Christian life. And, and listen to the counsel that, that this one demon named Screwtape would give. He says, make sure that Christians never come to a place of believing that Jesus is enough. Make them feel good about adding something to their faith, something other than Jesus. It was another writer who put it this way, those who are not secure in Christ, those who do not believe that Jesus is enough, they cast about for spiritual life preservers with which to support their confidence. They not only cling to shreds of ability they find in themselves, but they fix upon their race, their membership in a party, their familiar social and ecclesiastical patterns, and their culture as a means of self-recommendation. And these life preservers that we are grabbing, saying, yeah, we've got Jesus, but we need something else if we're really going to be at peace. If we're going to be assured of God's love and of God's affection and of God's acceptance of us. In Acts 15, they were trying to add things like circumcision. What is it that you're tempted to add? What life preserver are you grasping for because you are not convinced that Jesus is enough for you? It's moments like these, this unique stretch with all the chaos of our current society and all the things that we are seeing play out on the news and across the globe. It's moments like these that expose those life preservers, that show us what it is we are clinging to other than Jesus to find peace within and to discover a hope that can carry us through these moments, even through our death, if that were the case. Moments like these reveal those life preservers where we say, okay, my relationship with God is dependent upon Jesus plus my performance. And if I can get all of those variables right, then I will be saved. I will be at peace. I will be at rest. I will be with God forever. And it is this subtlety of legalism that we want to expose and we want to eradicate. And it's really when we begin to think about these things honestly that we find legalism to be quite laughable. That legalism is a laughable thing. If you drop down to verse 7, understand that Peter begins to remind the church at Jerusalem of what God did in Acts chapter 10. If you look at verse 7, we read, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles, that is the non-Jewish people, would hear the gospel message and believe and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them to the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God but putting a yoke on the disciples' neck that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? Do you hear the hypocrisy? Do you hear the laughable nature of legalism? Verse 11, on the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. Legalism is laughable because it exposes us all as hypocrites in one way or another. Reminded of a story of a trucker who liked to frequent brothels when he was out on the road and one of his friends told him about a particular brothel and a particular woman who worked there and after some conversations he decided to give it a shot. So he showed up at this brothel and he enters the place and and then there was this strange moment where he recognized that the woman his friend was talking about happened to be his wife. 
And in that moment, this trucker got angry. In that moment, this trucker had to be restrained because he was so enraged by his wife's lack of faithfulness. All the while, his hypocrisy was present. All the while, he was blind to the fact that everyone, everyone is unfaithful. And when we buy into the lie of legalism, we can convince ourselves that we might be faithful enough to our God to warrant the forgiveness of our sins, to warrant full acceptance by him. And then we begin to think of along the lines as Peter is thinking in this moment, reminded of how laughable legalism can be because it makes everyone a hypocrite. The gospel says that there's no one righteous, there is no one faithful, there is no one right enough in and of themselves, not a single person. It's laughable when you begin to think what Peter is acknowledging here. He's saying, look guys, you haven't carried the law as faithfully as you're hoping to impose upon these new Gentile believers. You haven't been able to carry God's law. Why do you think they can I've shared this story with you before, and it's one that my daughter loves to make fun of me about, but it's the first time I ever tried to lift weights in the seventh grade. And I was nervous about doing that because I'd never lifted weights before, and I wasn't a big guy. I was a scrawny little seventh grader, and, and uh, much to your surprise, I'm sure. And, and I walked up to the bench press, and I started to put weights on the ends just like everybody else was doing, but my coach looked at me and said, no, don't put any, don't put, just, just start with the bar. And I said, just start with the bar? He said, yeah, start with the bar. If you've ever lifted weights before, the bar is only 45 pounds. It doesn't weigh a lot. But I laid down, and I grabbed that bar, and, and I pulled it down to my chest, and, and it about crushed me. I could not get it up. I could not lift it. I was too weak in that moment, and so I just start crying out for help, and then someone much stronger than me came and grabbed the bar, lifted it off my chest, and put it back on the rack. I've shared that story with my daughter, and it was a huge mistake because she now makes fun of me over and over and over again about it. But the reality is, is that God's law is too heavy for any person to carry, that God's law is too heavy for you to lift on your own. And the good news of the gospel is that God has sent someone in much stronger than you and much stronger than me to carry God's law for us. When Jesus stepped onto the scene and began to teach publicly, one of the first things he said was, I have not come to erase the law. I've not come to demolish the law. I've not come to say the law isn't worth anything. No, I've come to fulfill it. I've come to carry the law for my people so that all who trust in me would benefit from what I'm about to do by living a life of perfect obedience and dying on the cross so that our sins may be forgiven and rising from the grave victoriously so that people like you and me who are weak, who are frail, who are hypocritical, who cannot carry God's law forward, we might find life, we might find hope, we might find salvation. And so Peter exposes the hypocrisy of this moment and his friend James agrees he agrees with Peter. So in verse 13, he, James steps up and he begins to bring some clarity to the situation. And he quotes from the prophet Amos and he reminds everyone there, hey, do you remember when the prophet Amos said that there's coming a day when God's going to rebuild his people? He's going to establish his people in a unique way in the world, that the gospel is going to cross every ethnic linguistic culture in the world. And and he begins to remind everyone of that. And he says, look, this is what's happening. 
This is the day that we are in now because the Messiah has come. The Messiah has risen. The Messiah has ascended. He's now reigning and ruling over all things. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And, and so he begins to remind everyone of these beautiful gospel realities. And, and he draws the conclusion, don't trouble the Gentiles by asking them or requiring them to conform to Jewish customs or to conform to the ceremonial aspects of the law that Jesus has fulfilled and that Jesus has carried. And in the conversation, he reminds everyone that salvation isn't a matter of, of people's performance, that salvation is a work of God's grace from first to last. And this is where we begin to see how legalism may be conquered, how your disturbed conscience may be settled, how peace may be provided to you even in days like these. We begin to find how legalism is conquerable as we consider the reality of the gospel. If you want peace in your conscience, if you want peace with your God, if you want peace with the life that you have lived up till now, knowing that Jesus provides forgiveness of all that has transpired, and if you want hope, for the future life that you have in this world, would you, would you consider how, would you consider taking the gospel in? That the way legalism is conquered is when you and I learn to take the gospel in by faith. This is what James and Peter are encouraging everyone to do in this moment. Earlier in verse 7, the noun for gospel is used. This gospel message, the story of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection the story of his ascension, the story of the giving of his spirit, the story of his promised return, saying, take this story into your life. Believe it for yourself. What he's saying here is what I would like to say to you is to take the gospel in, understanding that Christianity is a works-based religion, but it's not your works that it is based upon. Christianity, the gospel, salvation, is works-based, just not yours. The works that we trust in is the work of Jesus. And when you consider the life he lived and the death that he died, understand that his work is perfect. His work is complete. There is nothing to be added to it. There is nothing that can subtract from it. Our salvation, our peace, our hope, our life is dependent upon the works of someone, just not ours. It's dependent upon the works of Jesus. This is what the gospel message is. And so we want to take that gospel in. We want to believe that gospel and put our faith in this Jesus, but not only do we want to take this gospel in, we want to think this gospel through because this passage does encourage us to think kind of the ramifications or the implications of the gospel through. And because one of the things that can happen, if you and I can somehow conquer legalism and, and silence the little legalist that lurks within, some of us might kind of draw a really bad conclusion about that, and we can say, okay, I'm no longer going to be legalistic about anything, and I'm just going to move to the other side of the room and jump into an equal and opposite extreme where I'm just engaged in a lot of reckless living, and this taking the gospel in isn't really affecting me in a discernible way because I'm just moving from one extreme of legalistic approaches to life to 
another extreme, which is you know, more irreligious and reckless approaches to life so that we live without concern for, for anything, for morality, for ethics, for others. And, and so James here in this moment, he dissuades the church or he persuades the church from doing that by thinking the gospel through, saying, look, when you take this gospel in, it should lead you to live a more responsible life that shows care and concern for those around you. And what he begins to say when you look at verse 19, he's saying, I want you to consider the conscience of those around you. Don't allow the gospel, don't use the gospel or grace as an excuse to tread upon the sensitivities of others. And so this is the counsel that they're being brought to from James and Peter and the Holy Spirit who's working among them. Notice verse 19. James says, therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who are turning to God, meaning we shouldn't give them anything else to do. Jesus is enough. But instead, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and, and from blood. And here's why. Verse 21. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues. What James is calling for here is he's thinking the gospel through. He's saying, look, I want you to refrain from these things, not because your salvation is dependent upon them. In many ways, he's saying, I want you to refrain from these things because other people's salvation depends upon them. And if you are reckless in the way you cross cultures, if you are reckless by showing a lack of sensitivity for the ways people are thinking about life and interacting with the world around them and, this, and the sensitive consciences that many people have, if you dismiss those or if you are reckless with those, you are not going to showcase the beauty of Jesus. You're not going to showcase the beauty of the gospel so in verse 20, James does list things that Gentiles should avoid, but these things should be avoided because they were scandalous to Jews as these things were associated with different cultic practices that were in uh, pagan temples and, and all those types of things. And you might wonder, well, sexual immorality, immorality is listed there. Isn't that talked about elsewhere in the scriptures and as something that Christians should avoid? And, and that is absolutely true. But I think what's, target, what's being targeted in verse 20, with all these things being strung together, is specific cultic matters that, that Christians need to learn how to navigate faithfully, how to navigate in the loving way. So that James is basically saying, I don't want you to, step, I don't want you to cross a culture and and slap people in the face with your freedom. I don't want you to use the gospel as an excuse to be reckless in the way you're relating to people who do not yet know that Jesus is enough. And so this is a missional motivation. This is, a, this is, a, this is instruction designed to equip the church to make disciples of all nations by by loving people well. So he's saying, I want you to think the gospel through. This is how legalism is conquered. We take the gospel in. We think it through. We begin to think about the ways it gives shape to our lives, the ways in which it compels us to love people who are different from us in light of the grace of Jesus and in light of the reality of 
the gospel. And as you are taking the gospel in and you are thinking the gospel through, then you begin to turn the gospel out. And when you are turning the gospel out in your word and in your witness, when you are turning the gospel out by expressing the transformation that God's grace is working within you, that's when more and more people are going to be attracted to the salvation you have found in Jesus, the freedom that is yours in Christ. The Apostle Paul would teach on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where he talks about the freedom that we have because we're rescued by grace and we are, our salvation is dependent not upon our works but the works of Jesus. Paul affirms that and he talks about our freedom. But listen to what he says when he's navigating very similar waters in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Chapter 9. He says, although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law. Though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, which is love. And I'm doing this to win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may, by every possible means, see some saved or save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel so that I may share in its blessing. I do all of this because the gospel is giving shape to the life that I'm living in the way that I am approaching, approaching people in relationships. You know, as followers of Jesus, we have freedom in Christ. But one of the most important freedoms you are called to exercise as you follow Jesus is the freedom of self-restraint. It's the freedom of restraining yourself when you need to restrain yourself for the sake of other people's consciences, for the sake of other people's sensitivities. Yes, we are free in Christ. Yes, we are saved by grace. But this freedom we have and this grace that we've received is a grace that shapes our lives in loving directions. And we want to exercise the freedom of self-restraint every time we are called upon to do so, so that we might love people well, so that we might patiently shepherd people towards a clear understanding of what the gospel is and what the gospel means for them. So the way we conquer legalism and we silence that voice is by taking the gospel in, believing that Jesus' work is enough, thinking the gospel through, thinking deeply upon how the gospel changes the posture that we assume as we journey through this world. And then we conquer a legalistic spirit by turning the gospel out, by exercising our freedom, not in reckless ways, but in redeeming ways. That we would exercise the freedom of self-restraint that we have in Christ. Church, there are lots of people who live next to you and whom you will see over these next coming days who have sensitive consciences in all kinds of directions and they don't know what to do with them. And and I want to encourage you, in light of the love that God has shown you in Christ, the patience he has given you, the forgiveness he has given you, the acceptance that he has extended to you, 
to engage those moments in ways that reflect that grace and advance that gospel. Take the gospel in, think the gospel through, and turn the gospel out. Be willing to give up what is permissible if it means that more people can come to faith in Jesus, if it means that more people can be introduced to the love of the Savior. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I want to pray that you would bring peace to any unsettled conscience in this moment. Pray that you would bring clarity to any confused mind as, it, as we think about the relationship between your gospel and your grace and the lives that we're living in this world. God, I pray that you would work within us in such a way that would cause us to become more others-oriented, especially in days like these, that we would orient ourselves towards the flourishing of those around us, that we would communicate the message that Jesus is enough for us in every moment of every day and that we would encourage everyone around us with the fact that Jesus is enough for them too. God, I pray that you would crush the little legalist that is lurking within all of us. Would you silence that voice and carve it out of our souls so that the voice of your gospel, the voice of your grace would loom loud and loom large in our lives as we journey through the world that is en route to the world that is to come. God, we ask and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.